Hi, I'm Rochelle Young. And I'm Sam Tracy. And you're listening to This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy. This Week in Drugs is a weekly podcast meant to educate the public and decision makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy. And hopefully to have some fun while we're doing it. We neither condemn nor condone drug use. Rather, we envision a world in which our attitudes and laws surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. As usual, we'll be starting the show off with the biggest drug news stories from the last week and a forecast for a few important developments to keep an eye on. Then, after a shout out to one of our favorite nonprofits, we'll be talking about the history of cocaine in the third installment of August's Drug of the Month. Then next up is our roundtable discussion on the Silk Road online marketplace and Ross Ulbricht's conviction for his role in running it. And we're really honored to have as our guest Lynn Ulbricht, who's Ross's mother, and she's been an outspoken activist since he was charged, as well as Megan Ralston, a longtime drug policy expert who wrote extensively about the case while working at the Drug Policy Alliance. And as always, we'll wrap it all up with our calls to action, because while learning about drugs is a lot of fun, it doesn't matter if we're not using that knowledge to inform others and change policy. So thanks for joining us for episode 7 of This Week in Drugs, and we hope you enjoy the show. And now it's time for the weekly news and forecast, where Sam and I will discuss a few big drug-related stories from this week, and then let you know about a couple of things to look forward to. Sam, do you want to start us off with our first story? All right, so for our first story, unfortunately, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has signed legislation that bans powdered alcohol from being sold in the state. This actually makes them the 21st state to ban the product, which has been in the news lately because of a company marketing the brand Palcohol, uh, which just received FDA approval for selling it in the United States in March. So these bans have been propelled a lot by the fear-mongering about the product, with opponents claiming that they'll make it easier for underage people to sneak alcohol, easier to spike someone's drink without them knowing, or that people would just start trying to snort it instead of even mixing it with liquid as it's actually intended. But none of these are really justified. Uh, And after the bill's passage, Chuck Schumer, one of New York's U.S. senators and nanny stater extraordinaire, Uh, said, quote unquote, it's great that New York is leading on this issue, but this ban should be national. So I will continue to push legislation to do just that. So unfortunately, we can actually expect more of these efforts as more and more states do it and maybe even trying to uh, ban powdered alcohol in Congress sometime soon. Um, So you've touched upon this subject already when we did the the alcohol segment of the drug of the week. And one of the concerns that opponents to powdered alcohol keep bringing up is the potential for like people to snort powdered alcohol as a means of like getting more drunk or or ingesting it, which they say can be dangerous. But what you told us during that segment was that actually it wouldn't work very well because it's so like there's so little actual alcohol content per quantity of powder. Like it's just very fluffy that, uh, Um, You'd have to snort like 20 to 30 lines in order to get the equivalent of one drink. Yeah, it's insane. Today I actually watched this really great video on Wired that we'll we'll be sure to send a a link to on the website. But he goes through a couple of these different concerns and one of them was he actually takes out what's the equivalent of one drink of powdered alcohol and lays it out on a table. And it requires something like 30 half gram lines which are really big themselves and he says that even just doing a little bump of it was incredibly painful and it just doesn't make any sense that this would be any kind of concern it's much more enjoyable and you'll get drunk a lot faster just from drinking and then what about the concern that like this is something you could slip into someone's 
drink, like to spike their drink. Is that like valid? Yeah, that that one is actually almost even crazier because he he pours the powder into this and tries mixing it, and even after five minutes, it's still kind of chunky and. Uh, he isn't really able to conceal it at all. I mean, in comparison to just taking, you know, a shot of vodka and pouring it into somebody's drink, which instantly mixes. I mean, if you can imagine, say, trying to mix Kool-Aid into someone's drink when they without them noticing, it would be really hard to do. So this is pretty much the same sort of situation. Okay, so really bad for nefarious purposes, but really good for things like if you want to go hiking and want to carry something more lightweight than uh, than whatever amount of alcohol you normally would bring on your hiking trips with you. Yeah, and that's what it's marketed for. And also, it would be handy to bring through the TSA as well, since you can't bring liquids anymore. Very good. If you're going somewhere with no alcohol on the other side of your trip, um, this is something to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. Perfect for trips to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> so, moving on. <laughs> but what's the next story we yeah, got Yeah, moving today? on to our next story. So... Activists leading the Black Lives Matter movement, which, um, if, if you haven't heard of it yet, is a movement to bring attention and end police violence against um, mostly unarmed African Americans recently. Leaders of that movement have issued a list of specific practical policy solutions that they believe will help for their, their cause. Um, they received some criticism recently that they're just trying to do the bringing attention to their movement and that they haven't offered any practical solutions. So this is what they are doing and an endorsement for decriminalizing marijuana uh decriminalizing marijuana possession possession is right at the top of that list which is great as many of our listeners know african americans are nearly four times more likely to be arrested for the possession of marijuana than white americans are despite similar rates of use across all races so this really ties together the Black Lives Matter movement with us trying to end the war on drugs and marijuana decriminalization isn't the only um, drug war related policy that um, these activists recommend. They also include on their list, which you which will uh, link to uh, on our website as well. They also include on their list an end to stop and frisk policies for which drugs um, dr- or drug searches have commonly been used as an excuse. Um, and they also suggest ending asset forfeiture uh, practices and the use of military equipment, which we discussed uh, last week. Wow. Yeah, this is really fantastic to see because, I mean, I wonder if it is a response or, I mean, they've probably been working on it for a while just because of that video of Hillary Clinton asking them to put forward more hard policy solutions rather than just talking in generalities. And these are all fantastic solutions. I mean, even all the non-drug war stuff in there. But these things, as our viewers know, or listeners, I guess I should say, (laughs) but as our listeners know, the war on drugs is vastly disproportionately uh, targeted against communities of color. So ending that is really one of the the best ways to ensure that the Black Lives Matter movement is successful. Yeah. And I guess to to digress slightly, it's been really... um, heartening to see how responsive both politicians and activists have been in their interactions with each other. You know, the Black Lives Matter movement or certain actors within that movement have been criticized for interrupting several political rallies recently. Um, But both Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, at least, have really responded to the importance of, you know, this new civil rights movement. And now, like you said, we're seeing uh, the movement respond back to suggestions by um, allies. Yeah, fantastic. I really hope that this uh, the momentum continues and that we'll be able to have them as good allies in working on the, these bills that they've been endorsing. 
And now for the next story, uh, actually bringing us outside of the U.S., moving over to uh, the U.K. So Public Health England, which is a government health agency over in the United Kingdom, has for the first time publicly stated that e-cigarettes are less harmful than tobacco cigarettes. And they actually even went a lot further than that, even saying that by best estimates so far, e-cigs are 95% safer than smoked tobacco. And so because of this, the agency is actually now putting a lot more of a focus on getting smokers to switch to vaping rather than focusing solely on getting them to quit. And to help speed this process along, they so this was part of this 111-page report. And one of the major things in it was calling for reducing the barriers to bringing e-cigs to market and getting them to people. And especially the government's licensing process that's currently in place. Uh, which is really expensive and time-consuming, and different companies have said it costs over a million dollars to comply with uh, all these regulations just to get something on the market. Um, so this is also something you touched upon previously in another in another drug of the week segment um, about nicotine. So I guess it's great to see that um, the harm reduction focus on shifting people from tobacco use to e-cig use, but there's also a lot of people, or I don't know how substantiated. Uh, this is, but people also talk about like this being used as a gateway drug almost to uh, smoking like traditional regular cigarettes. Did they address that in any way or is there any ev- evidence for that fear or for that concern? Yeah, so they are actually tackling that one head on because I mean that's what you see a lot in the US because unfortunately our public health community has been a lot less uh, supportive of e-cigs. And people point to this one study from the Journal of American Medical Association, and that found that high schoolers who try e-cigs are more likely to try tobacco. But just like the whole marijuana being a gateway drug thing, this is totally, you know, it's just correlation. It's not necessarily causation. And so Peter Hayek, who's one of the authors of this uh, this review in the UK, uh, he said, it just shows that people who are attracted to e-cigarettes are the same people who are attracted to smoking. And the example he used was people who drink white wine are more likely to try red wine than people who don't drink alcohol at all. And this just makes a lot of perfect sense. And, you know, it's the people, the high schoolers that might be uh, trying to do something adult and re- rebelling and everything. So we can't really say that just because someone tries an e-cig that that makes them more likely to, uh, to move on to actual tobacco. Yeah, this is really this is really great and it's really consistent with like harm reduction measures because if they're going to try one or the other anyway, we should really be, you know, pushing them towards the least the less harmful of the two products. So for our final news story of the week, um, we are remaining in the realm of uh, legal substances. And this one is about a new pharmaceutical drug um, that the FDA just approved this week. This substance, whose real name is Addy, um, has been often called in the news media female Viagra. Um, and it finally received approval after several uh, rounds of being actually rejected by the FDA. Um, so there are really important distinctions between the intent and effects of Addy, uh, the new quote unquote female Viagra, versus traditional male Viagra. The most important of which is that with Viagra, um, the sexual desire on behalf of the man or the, the user of the drug is already there, and all the all it does um, is act as an aid in assisting with like becoming erect by sending by physically sending more blood to the penis. Um, in contrast, Addy is intended for women who want to become aroused, but for for whatever reason are struggling with a decreased libido, so the sexual desire is not actually. Uh, like mentally there. Oftentimes this can be a result of like trauma that um, the woman has suffered um, or or one that I didn't realize is that chemo th- 
therapy treatment can often decrease libido. So like for women who do want to get turned on but like can't um, psychologically, Addy is supposed to um, help with that. And how it works is by rebalancing certain neurotransmitters that affect sexual desire, like increasing dopamine and norepinephrine levels and decreasing serotonin. Um, and this is like not entirely surprising because flibanserin, which is the um, active ingredient in Addy, um, was originally developed as an antidepressant. That's really interesting. And I mean, I feel like that's something that gets lost a lot of the time is talking about how this drug actually works, because people keep saying just that it's called the female Viagra and assume that it's essentially the same thing. But that's just, you know, another media oversimplification. Mm -hmm. I think it's like really interesting, too, because like when people say it's female Viagra, the effects of Addy on the brain um, should be no different for men. So ostensibly this drug I was actually about to ask that yeah really (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. yeah for like men who struggle who are struggling with like sexual desire in the exact same way you know whether it's because of trauma that they have suffered or the chemo treatment you know um if they're not feeling emotionally aroused then Addy sounds like it could be a solution for that too so it's not really female Viagra versus male Viagra it's really um like a just whole different perception of what sexual arousal is Hmm, that is really interesting especially now that it's only being at least to the best of my knowledge only marketed for for women so i don't know if that's kind of a perceived difference of you know how how men and women work that oh you don't even need to concern yourself with a man's brain with men because they automatically (laughs) are into it all the time yeah exactly um, it's this weird assumption it's also interesting because it's only been approved for pre-menopausal women um so women who are still getting their period um and Whereas we know that like postmenopausal women often do experience a decrease in libido. So this could be something that would be more likely to be helpful to that demographic. Very interesting. Yeah, really looking forward to as this gets on the market now of uh, seeing how it, the effects uh, all play out. And so now moving over to our weekly forecast, uh, the first one that I've got here is there's actually a really incredibly exciting case before the Supreme Court of Brazil right now. So the justices are actually maybe deciding whether to decriminalize the possession of all drugs. Uh, So the case itself is actually an appeal on behalf of a prisoner who was caught with drugs in his prison cell. But it has brought up some really big questions as to how the country treats drug users and could set a major precedent here. So their current approach in Brazil is actually really similar to that of the United States. So the users face harsh criminal penalties and sellers are subject to mandatory minimum sentences. And both of these in combination have led to the booming prison population and really large disparities in enforcement and sentencing between different races and between uh, the rich and the poor. And so the court has been uh, hearing the case just started this past week, and now they're in the process of reviewing some documents and are going to recommence uh, doing the hearing after that. So since this could radically transform Brazil's approach to drugs, uh, but Brazil, since they have so much influence in the rest of Latin America, it could start a little bit of a domino effect, too. So this is definitely uh, one to watch. That is super exciting. And I don't know if you have this information now, but I'd be curious to know, like, on the basis, like, on what basis this case was brought before the court um, and how they're deciding like this big philosophical question about policy rather than the case at hand. But maybe that's something we can Google and send to our readers next week or readers, (laughs) listeners. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Well, they'll read the website and we'll put it up on there if we can find any good, uh, any kind of a legal analysis of it. Cool. So for the next forecast, this is another um, announcement that we'd like you to look forward to also. 
So at a campaign rally in Nevada this week, Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders announced that in September, so next month, when Congress reconvenes, he's going to be introducing legislation to abolish private for-profit prisons, which have been a powerful supporter of the war on drugs. Um, This announcement obviously was widely lauded by criminal justice and drug policy advocates. But what's even more exciting for us is that Bernie also hinted that the campaign would address marijuana legalization in the next month. And uh, specifically, everyone who's reporting this is saying legalization, not just marijuana policy reform or marijuana policy. So they didn't say he would outright support it. But given that far more conservative candidates than Sanders, like many of the Republican Um, Hopefuls, Carly Fiorini, uh, Fiorina and Jeb Bush, for example, have already staked out positions in favor of states' rights. Um, I can only imagine that as a super progressive liberal candidate who really understands these uh, criminal justice policy issues, um, Bernie won't shy away from being more direct about his support. That's my, I mean, prediction, and it seems to be where everyone else is going to. Many marijuana reformers have been pressuring him uh, for the past few months since he announced his candidacy to come out um, on marijuana legalization, and now it's almost here. Oh, this is exciting. I really hope that this uh, comes out pretty soon and we can have it in the news segment instead of the forecast. So that actually uh, wraps up this week's uh, weekly news and forecast. And so since we're always following news about the drug war, but there is so much happening that it's hard to keep track of or even include in here. But if you ever see a good news story or hear about an upcoming event that you'd like us to feature on the show, uh, just you can send it to us on social media or on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, you can email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com or just look for our contact info on the, the website and uh, we may include it in next week's show. This week, we'd like to give a shout out to the Zendo Project, an incredibly important initiative by MAPS that's focused on psychedelic harm reduction. Their mission is to provide a supportive space for people undergoing difficult psychedelic experiences at music festivals or similar events in order to transform potentially traumatic experiences into valuable learning opportunities and to reduce the number of drug-related psychiatric hospitalizations. They also provide an environment where volunteers can work alongside one another to improve their therapeutic skills. And on the policy side of things, they showcase their work to demonstrate that the psychedelic community can take care of its own without the need for law enforcement-based policies. Since many of our listeners are probably attending Burning Man next week, we also want to let you know that the Zendo Project will be there. Their group of trained volunteers will be providing psychedelic harm reduction services at two different locations on the playa. One at uh, 245 in Arcade, and the other at 915 in Doniker. If you or anyone you know is undergoing a difficult psychedelic experience while there, they're going to be there to help. But if you're just doing fine, please stop by and thank them for the great work they do. And to learn more, you can check out zendoproject.org, and that's spelled Z-E-N-D-O project.org. And now it's time for our drug of the month, which for August is cocaine. In this third installment, we'll discuss the history of cocaine and how perceptions of its use have evolved over time. Once again, we begin with the coca leaf. During our first segment on cocaine, we explored in depth the process of transforming the South American plant coca into the white powdery drug cocaine. 
Long before the cocaine alkaloid was ever discovered, indigenous peoples in the Andes were already chewing the leaves of the coca plant for its stimulant effects. The traditional method of chewing coca leaf consists of keeping a saliva-soaked ball of coca of coca leaves in the mouth, oftentimes combined with lime juice to assist in releasing the active ingredients from the leaves. Evidence of coca use has been discovered in mummies in northern Chile dating back 3,000 years, and on archaeological digs in northern Peru from as far back as 8,000 years ago. Archaeologists uncovered even more extensive evidence of use from during the Inca Empire, finding mummies buried with a supply of coca leaves, and even pottery depicting the characteristic cheek bulge of a coca chewer. Coca chewing may originally have been limited to the eastern Andes before its introduction to the Incas, and it was during this period that the plant began to be viewed as having divine origins. Because of this, its cultivation became subject to a state monopoly and its use restricted to nobles and a few favored upper classes. However, as the Incan Empire declined, the leaf became more widely available. The Spaniards are believed to have effectively encouraged use of coca by an increasing majority of the population to increase their labor output and tolerance for starvation. But it's not clear that this plan that this was entirely planned deliberately. Coca was then introduced to Europe during the 16th century, but did not become popular until the mid-19th century, with the publication of an influential paper praising its stimulating effects on cognition. In 1859, Albert Niemann of the University of Göttingen became the first person to isolate the chief alkaloid of coca, which he named cocaine. This led to the invention of coca wine and the first production of pure cocaine. The most popular brand of coca wine was Vin Mariani, which was well-loved by many prominent figures, including several popes, Queen Victoria, and even Thomas Edison. This and other coca-containing preparations were widely sold as patent medicines and tonics, including among them the original version of Coca-Cola. In 1903, cocaine was removed from Coca-Cola's formula, though a decoconized coca extract is still used as flavoring to this day. During the late 19th century, large American drug companies such as Park Davis, which is now a division of Pfizer, developed processes for the mass production of powder cocaine, or cocaine hydrochloride, which could be accurately measured and dispensed. Finely powdered lines of cocaine could be medically snorted through a cut straw. The intravenous use of cocaine also quickly became the most popular method of consumption, and again, drug companies were ready to market the drug to consumers this time in little boxes that contain syringes, needles, and coke, all packaged together as a fashion accessory. Until 1916, cocaine was sold over-the-counter in the United States. Though the recent film Wolf of Wall Street reinforces the stereotype of the drug-fueled Wall Street stockbrokers of the 1980s, cocaine use within the gilded walls of the New York Stock Exchange actually dates back to much longer. Digitally archived copies of the New York Times detail 1915 drug raids of company heads with offices located a few blocks from the trading floor. Numerous links between Coke and Wall Street emerged even during earlier decades, including a high-profile sting that resulted in the arrest of 19 brokers in 1967. The long-lasting relationship between cocaine and high-powered brokers, bankers, and traders is not at all surprising considering cocaine's well-known ability to stave off exhaustion, increase alertness, confidence, and euphoria, allowing traders to work impossibly long hours under extremely high-pressure situations. A combination of other factors also contribute to its widespread use, not only on Wall Street, but among other white-collar industries as well, including money, stress, easy access, and impunity. 
In the early 2000s, major banks actually started hiring on-staff substance abuse counselors in response to employee demand. The story of coke-fueled Wall Street differs greatly, however, from that of those who are most severely punished by strict and arbitrary cocaine laws. I'm speaking, of course, of the, cocaine, the crack cocaine sentencing disparities. Between 1984 and 1985, crack began to appear in urban areas such as New York, Miami, and Los Angeles. By 1986, crack was widely available in large U.S. cities and relatively inexpensive. For example, $50 to $100 a person could buy, small, could buy powder cocaine in gram or half gram quantities. For $5 to $20, however, a person could buy a small vial of crack that included a few crack rocks. The availability of small quantities of crack cocaine at an inexpensive price revolutionized inner-city drug markets. Along with the new drug market that crack created in urban America came dramatic, fear-mongering claims about the effects of the drug. Beginning with the Iran-Contra affair, some politicians and journalists have argued that the CIA contributed to the rise of the epidemic. In 1986, the Reagan administration released a three-page report admitting at least some Contra cocaine connections in previous years. A much longer report released in 1989, known as the Kerry Committee Report, confirmed that, quote, it is clear that individuals who provided support for the Contras were involved in drug trafficking, and elements of the Contras themselves knowingly received financial and material assistance from drug traffickers. The report cited legal cover provided by the CIA to the Contras in the drug trade, as well as accounting for approximately $800,000 paid by the State Department to four companies owned and operated by narcotics traffickers. But the pivotal moment leading to the crack cocaine disparity was in June 1986, when University of Maryland basketball star Len Bias died of a drug overdose just hours after the Boston Celtics picked him in the NBA draft. His death sparked a national media frenzy largely focused on the drug that was suspected incorrectly of having killed him, crack cocaine. A few weeks after Bias's death, Congress passed the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, establishing for the first time mandatory minimum sentences triggered by specific quantities of cocaine. Congress also established much, much tougher sentences for crack cocaine offenses than for powder cocaine cases. For example, distribution of just 5 grams of crack carries a minimum 5-year federal prison sentence, while for powder cocaine, distribution of 500 grams or 100 times the amount of crack cocaine carries the same sentence. The sentencing disparity is extremely arbitrary and not based in science. It also promotes unwarranted disparities based on race. Because of its relative low cost, crack cocaine is far more accessible to poor Americans, many of whom are African Americans, uh, whereas, as we've discussed, powder cocaine is much more expensive and tends to be used by more affluent white Americans. Thus, the sentencing disparities punishing crack cocaine offenses far more harshly and unjustly penalize uh, African Americans. Fortunately, just five years ago, President Obama signed into law the Fair Sentencing Act, which reduced the disparity from a 100 to 1 ratio to an 18 to 1 ratio, and eliminated the five-year mandatory minimum sentence for simple possession of crack cocaine. Earlier this year, the U.S. Sentencing Commission released a report on the impact of the Fair Sentencing Act, and fortunately found that the Fair Sentencing Act reduced the disparity between crack and cocaine sentences, substantially reduced the federal prison population, and resulted in fewer federal pro prosecutions for crack cocaine. All the while, crack cocaine use continued to decline. So that's all for today. Tune in next week for our fourth and final segment of this Drug of the Month, where we'll explore some more recent trends, news, and policies surrounding cocaine.
Alright everybody, and now it's time for our roundtable discussion where we bring in some of the world's leaders in drugs and drug policy to talk about some really serious issues facing us today. And today we are incredibly honored to be joined by Lynn Ulbricht, the mother of Ross Ulbricht, who was recently convicted as the Dread Pirate Roberts, the head of internet marketplace Silk Road. We're also joined by Megan Ralston, the drug policy consultant and former harm reduction manager at the Drug Policy Alliance, who has written about the case extensively, which we'll also send some links to on our website. So Lynn and Megan, thank you so much for coming on. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So to start off, Lynn, many of our fans are big drug policy nerds, and many of them have probably used Silk Road in the past. Some may fall into both camps, but we also have a lot of listeners who are just curious about the issue but don't know a lot about it. So uh, to start off, could you give our audience a kind of a quick rundown about what exactly Silk Road was and in, in your experience with the case? Sure. Quick rundown. That's a big question, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I was never on Silk Road. I'm not really an expert on the site at all. From what I understand, from what I've read and spoken to Ross about is that it was, he created it as um, a free market, open market site. And uh, he wanted people to have an experience of what that would be. Um, it, he did not create it as a drug site per se. Although the fact that it was anonymous, I understand why it would attract that. There were restrictions, some restrictions, things that would harm like child pornography, for example, or assassinations or stolen property. So, and I know that this was Ross's intention because before he was arrested, he also, he had created a video game to try to give people an experience of the free market. He had lectured on the subject at UT and um, at different meetups around Austin. So that was his passion. The judge rejected that that was his intention, but I'm quite convinced it was. And from what I understand, um, you know, there were many things sold on the site that were legal and um, were not drugs, but I'm not really, my purpose isn't necessarily to defend the site per se at all, but I, I understand some of the criticisms, but um, in any case, that's what I understand it to have been, and I think that the intention was was to have a free market. Uh, um, as far as um, what has happened since, um, of course, Ross was arrested. Um, he was brought to trial. We believe it was a very unfair trial, and just, you know, mm-hmm. I could talk about that for an hour, but um, basically... Uh, defense witnesses were not allowed to testify. His attorney was not permitted to um, cross-examine witnesses effectively because of evidentiary rules that were put into place uh, after day three. And um, in addition, uh, very important evidence was precluded, including, not exclusive to, but including the fact that there were two corrupt government agents who had full access to the site. And um, they were able to... um, they basically the keys to the kingdom. They um, had the ability to change passwords, reset PIN numbers, access DPR's account, even without DPR losing access, and other admin accounts. They could change anything in the database, manipulate logs, chats, private messages, keys, posts, account information, bank accounts. I mean, it, basically unfettered. Um, and conceivably, they had the motive to alter data because they were um, stealing. They were stole um, a, about a million dollars. So um, the fact that this and this this fact and these guys have pled guilty at this point was not permitted to be known to the jury. And um, even to this day, we don't know what extent 
they compromise the website or the evidence because it's still sealed much of it and um this to me is a real scandal that this was not allowed to be brought before the jury um and, and i don't clear, see how you can understand uh, you know accept the evidence anyway go ahead oh sorry just to be clear because i hadn't heard a whole bunch about these uh government agents was this in the course of their investigation against silk road that they did all of this hacking and accessing the back-end data or was yes they were undercover okay. they were working for the government as undercover agents in fact one of them was the lead undercover investigator in the maryland uh, department of homeland security so they used their access you know their their job as investigators to do this yes that's mm -hmm. true but unfortunately it was that they were stealing a lot of these not for the government but for personal enrichment right in terms of taking their bitcoins and transferring them into their personal accounts and i mean we see this sort of thing in the in the drug war as a whole and kind of in real life rather than online of people uh of police abusing their power like this and it's just so terrible that that wasn't even able to be included in the proceedings yeah i mean it cast to me doubt on the evidence they they were manipulating evidence they were manipulating mm -hmm. the site um and then since then ross was sentenced um to five they, he was convicted for seven counts sentenced for five and often the government will pile on extra things but um sentenced for five and he got double life none of which none of the charges were for anything he actually did himself it was for being a website host um where other people did these things and um he got life for all nonviolent um, charges. And so that's where we stand now, is that Ross has, is in prison, double life plus some extra stuff. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. like, why bother? And um, yeah, for a nonviolent, basically drug charges. And so Megan, as a drug policy expert and harm reduction expert, um, why do you think it is that Silk Road, which was never meant to be that was meant to be an experiment in free open market rather than a specifically drug focused uh, website. Why do you think it turned into a hotspot for the online drug trade? Well, I think, you know, it's it's sort of a an, an intuitive response to the complete failure of our drug war in the United States and around the world and a, and a natural response to the utter failure of prohibition. I think that, you know, people forget that it's not just people in the U.S. who are using Silk Road to buy drugs. It's people all around the world who live in politically oppressive climates where the punishment for selling or buying drugs is so much more severe than it is here in the U.S. And I think that if you give people an opportunity to be safer, to make healthier choices, to buy and sell drugs anonymously without the fear of gun violence or sexual assault, that of course naturally people would gravitate to that way of, of doing drug-related business. So I think that when you give people an alternative to danger, disaster, uh, you know, assault, being ripped off financially, buying bad drugs of dubious quality or origin, it makes sense that of course people would explore that new alternative. And so this is something in, in particular that you've written about um, in connection to Silk Road. Um, you mentioned that it gave people a safer, less dangerous alternative, um, access to you know quality substances. Can you talk a little bit about the mechanisms that were built into Silk Road as a website that allowed these uh, harm reduction measures in drug transactions? Yeah, so Silk Road was really so innovative 
um, really very much ahead of its time, which is not to say that it was an ideal mechanism for people wanting to buy or sell drugs, but it certainly represented a bold vision of how, how drug sales and transactions could be better, less dangerous, more safe, et cetera. And so Ross did some really interesting things, things that really showed to us, the drug policy community and the harm reduction community, that he really was thinking so much further ahead than anyone else around him at the time. So he did some things to increase the likelihood of better information being shared with people, reducing risks for people who sell drugs uh, and, and use drugs. Uh, and so let me articulate a couple of those things. And so one of the things was to allow a mechanism for people to give feedback. So if you buy drugs from someone, uh, buying drugs from anyone under any circumstance is always risky, whether it's in person or anonymously over the internet, uh, drugs themselves can be very risky, so let's make that clear. But he allowed a mechanism for people who, once they bought drugs, they were able to then go back and provide feedback about the, the experience of buying the drugs and were they ripped off and what was the quality like. So people were able to share information with one another. But he didn't just stop there. He also allowed for an MD, a medical professional, to be involved in this, to, to give drug users information about the drugs that they're consuming, how to reduce their risk of overdose, how to reduce their risk of problems uh, while they're consuming drugs. I mean, he really went very much above and beyond uh, what he really had to do to try and make this whole enterprise just a little bit less risky and a little bit more safe, particularly for people who use drugs. Yeah, thank you. And, and moving on back over to the actual uh, the actual court case, it's really interesting to me of following all of this actually with, of course, all of my work in, in drug policy. But as uh, some of our listeners may not know, actually, my other job is actually in the tech policy side of things. And I worked with a, a tech policy think tank down in D.C. before moving up to Massachusetts for the, the medical marijuana industry. So I was following this in, in, through that kind of lens for a while, too. And there's actually this... Uh, this really interesting law called uh, CDA 230, that's part of the Communications Decency Act, that says website hosts can't be held responsible for content that their users post to the site, uh, which is often used for things like Facebook or Reddit, essentially that, that users are responsible for all of the content rather than the, the website hosts providing this sort of forum. And but, but that wasn't really followed or applied here, and they, they took a completely different direction. So, Lynn, why do you think it was that uh, they, the government essentially, you know, threw the book at Ross and trumped up all of these charges for something that probably wouldn't have been uh, the case for anything aside from uh, if it wasn't linked to drugs. Uh, why do you think that they, you know, sentenced him to double life in prison without any uh, any acts of violence? Well, before I, I answer that, um, it's interesting you brought up Section 230 because of, that applies to civil cases. But if Ross were being sued civilly by you, say, um, for the exact same conduct, he would be immune. So there's this huge gap. There's this huge um, anomaly that um, his lawyer says is a dangerous anomaly because it's putting a crack in the door now with this precedent that uh, could undermine, well, the spirit certainly of Section 230 and make website hosts more vulnerable to criminal liability now. And that was what 230 was, you know, passed to uh, prevent. Mm -hmm. um, I think the judge made it quite clear, so did the prosecution, that what they're doing is they needed a poster boy. Uh, for the drug war, and Ross got to be the poster boy. She, she said, we're setting an example here, 
and so we're going to make sure that you know everybody knows that um if you do this you will suffer well you'll lose your life um basically and um the thing about that is and they're saying you know this is the first case of its kind there and it's been pointed out they're quite frightened of the internet and 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 the potential there and i think that's part of it um but basically they weren't sentencing ross as an individual which is what is a tenant of our um government and our justice system they were sentencing him as a poster boy as an example and so basically he's shouldering the burden for present and future offenders that he doesn't even know and has no control over their actions so he's serving time for them too for any dark web quote-unquote drug lord who has so far has escaped and we're individuals in this country supposedly and um you know it it seems wrong to me to do that but I think that's why. They made it very clear that they were doubling down on this failed <laughs> policy that's called the drug war that has not stopped anyone from using drugs, as you all know better than I do, and, um, you know, has been devastating um, both financially and to families. I see these families all the time at the prison, nonviolent offenders, drug offenders, and I see the children clinging to their fathers for that measly hour a week when they get to see them and i talk to the families you know we talk together and it's heartbreaking what's going on here and we're all together when we visit i'm with these supposed offenders we're all together in this room and everyone's peaceful everyone's happy to see their loved ones Mm -hmm. and i'm like why are they in here they could be look put a ankle bracelet on them and let them go home and make restitution or whatever you want to do but why are they in this cage and uh anyway so megan as as lynn mentioned you know ross was really used as a poster boy in many ways during the prosecution as a warning to other webmasters or web developers who might you know develop new websites like this in the dark web Uh, that can be used for drug trade purposes, whether or not that's the intent. And in fact, websites since Silk Road have popped up, such as Agora and um, even Silk Road 2.0 and Silk Road 3 Reload, um, since the other ones have been taken down. So do you you think that this trial has really had an impact on the online drug trade? I think the only impact that it's had is to teach people how to not make the same mistakes Ross made in terms of protecting the information on the databases and servers. I mean, that much we know. I mean, people who actually are involved in this new generation of of drug marketplaces online have said as much, you know, that now we're smarter and now we know what to do. And so I think that if anything, you know, the proliferation of these kinds of sites since the fall of Silk Road is enormous you know you know some some folks estimate there are approximately 40 active marketplaces now with tens of millions of customers around the world or you know hundreds of millions of dollars that may or may not be true but it's definitely true that these sites of course exploded after people saw what silk road was able to accomplish you know the real concern is that i don't know any of the other people who run other sites And I don't know if they are as invested in at least trying to minimize dangers and risks to drug users who use the site. I don't know if they care about the health or well-being of people who use drugs uh, the way that Ross did. 
And I think that it's unfortunate that we had this, this innovative example of what could be possible to make the entire global drug war collapse by having this you know, slightly more regulated and controlled environment where users could share information, there was health information available, et cetera. It's a shame that rather than having the government at least acknowledge that, okay, there were some things that were potentially interesting here that could potentially reduce violence and crime and you know, uh, people being assaulted, et cetera, during drug transactions. You know, it's a shame that, that instead of trying to figure out what was good about Silk Road, we just shut everything down. I mean, it makes sense because that's the nature of our disastrous global war on drugs. That's the nature of our disastrous prohibitionist policies. Uh, I, I wish that we could have taken more time to really figure out even better ways to make Silk Road more beneficial to people who buy and sell and use drugs. And I think that the, the explosion of new sites is just a reflection of the fact that that is probably, we're probably right now looking at the future of drug sales. I think that, that that horse has left the barn. And I think that we better figure out as drug policy reformers, as people who are fighting the drug war, we better start figuring out right now how we can look at those models and even make them better and increase benefits substantially more and reduce risks even more. And this is so analogous to traditional drug trade in the uh, in the physical world, even, um, in which harm reduction measures are often thwarted because they're seen as enabling the drug trade or propping up the drug trade. And really, these things would happen regardless of whether the harm reduction aspect is there or not. And just another perfect parallel and being just the the whole analogy of the war on drugs being, you know, like fighting a hydra in which you cut off one head and 10 more sprout up where it was. And you see the same exact thing in the physical world if you... Uh, you know, you take down one larger drug organization and a bunch more come up to try to fill the vacuum. But a lot of the times they're much uh, less responsible, much more violent. And you can see that uh, probably the same thing is happening in the online world now that the kind of larger Silk Road is gone. And then you you mentioned in your last answer that uh, the, about the, the failed war on drugs and this being just one more example in it. So I'm, so I'm really curious, was, was the war on drugs something that you had been an opponent of before had you paid much attention to this before the case or it was was it really ross's uh conviction that was um the thing that spurred you into uh realizing and fighting against the war on drugs yeah i actually really wasn't did not give the war on drugs very much thought i had a friend who was arrested for marijuana several years ago and got a mandatory minimum sentence of five years and at the time i thought Wait, wait, that's wrong. We have separation of powers. Um, what do you mean mandatory minimum? Doesn't the judge decide? Uh, and thought, you know, that was wrong. But really, my kids were not, quote unquote, into drugs, didn't have drug problems. We didn't. It wasn't really on my radar. And um, now <laughs> well, I've, I've, of course, looked into it. And it seems to me that in so many ways, it's such a failure, you know, obviously, such ex an expensive failure in money and, of course, in human lives and hasn't stopped anyone from using drugs, as far as I know. But it's a big success in many ways. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a way, I don't even think it's really about drugs. I think it's a way for the government to expand power and trample on our constitutional rights and, you know, to keep us safe from drugs, quote unquote. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. I think it's another vehicle for government expansion. And um, so it's a big success. It's also huge success for the prison industrial complex, as you guys know. These prisons are bursting at the seams 
with nonviolent offenders like Ross. And there's a lot of money to be made, um, as you guys know more than I do. Mm -hmm. And so it's a big success in a lot of ways. It's working for them. And but I hadn't really I didn't really think about it that much until Ross was arrested and I started looking into it. Well, we can certainly see where Ross got some of his free market and libertarian ideals <laughs> from. Well, I'm even more so now. <laughs> <laughs> so what are what are the next steps for Ross? Um, I know that I believe I heard that he was appealing the case on several levels, both the pretrial rulings and and the the charges and the sentencing, of course. Um, so where where are we going from here, uh, case wise? Yeah, exactly. We um, the I uh, the appeal the paperwork for the appeal will be filed mid December by Ross's attorneys. And yes, you're right. It's pretrial issues, course trial issues, and sentencing. This sentence is. I mean, we got. There was worldwide outcry at this sentence. People can't in other countries can't even believe this sentence. And, you know, I recently tweeted, does anyone really think their lives are in danger if Ross walked out of that prison tomorrow? Do you really think he's a threat? I, I mean, it, it, and to not even allow him in 20 years, he'd be in 50, one, that he couldn't. You know, think he's going to go and start another Silk Road? He'll be like Rip Van Winkle. The world will be, he can't get on email even. He can't get on internet. The world will be a totally different place. Couldn't give him a chance to, um, you know, <laughs> make restitution or to reform or whatever they want to call it. It's like that's part of the Sentencing Reform Act is that mm -hmm. the sentence is sufficient but no greater than necessary. Necessary meaning you're reformed. And um, so it's stunning, this sentence. And I think it's, um, well, I have a lot of words for it, but I think it's really wrong. We, we are syndicated on the radio as well. So some of those words we might not be allowed to say because of the FCC. <laughs> it's, but, you know, it's, it's, it's draconian. Mm -hmm. It's draconian. And yeah. um, a way more than necessary does, flies in the face of the Sentencing Reform Act, in my opinion. And as you were saying before, this really does just sound like something, I mean, just blatantly un-American. Uh, I mean, this is something I expect this sort of a verdict to come out of places, you know, like Singapore, other places in Southeast Asia or Africa where they're incredibly strict about drugs and, I mean, a host of other issues. But where, where it's barely, you know, it's not even a criminal justice system. It's just the government slapping people down. And here it's just something you this isn't how the American justice system is supposed to work. And um, while I was following the case, I had read a lot about and, and you alluded to this before about just exactly how the case went down and all of the uh, the misconduct and, and things that the defense wasn't allowed to do. And I, w I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about those a little bit. Um, and, and two of the main things that I had heard about was um, that they wouldn't even allow uh, it to be mentioned of the possibility that there may be being multiple people under the pseudonym Dread Pirate Roberts uh, and the, the prosecution uh, challenged that and wouldn't even let that be discussed before the jury, uh, which, of course, just makes so much sense. I mean, anyone who's seen Princess Bride, the whole point of Dread Pirate Roberts is that it's a name shared by a bunch of people. I feel like it makes sense that that was, you know, kind of part of the reason that that name was chosen. And then the other thing is just since there's been so much of this online, um, all of the allegations of the, the murder for hire stuff, which 
he wasn't even charged with, let alone convicted. But it, this is maintained just because, you know, the way that the Internet rumor mill works, people see a headline. And now that's kind of the assumption that people have. So there might have been those who who see him getting these, uh, you know, double life sentence and think, OK, great, that is a dangerous person. But uh, that wasn't even brought up in the in the case. So uh, what are your thoughts on that? And, and how did that all go down? OK, um the the as far as the murder for hire you're right that he was not charged with it so of course he wasn't convicted for it there isn't still an indictment in maryland which was the site of the corruption mm-hmm. and um so there's a lot of questions but an, an indictment is, is does not require proof an indictment is simply can be based on hearsay and it's been sitting there for almost two years poisoning the atmosphere and our lawyer said if it had any merit they would have used it in the trial these guys are not the kind of people who give you a pass oh well we'll just give you a pass on that murder plan murder thing they um (laughs) do not do that um if they have any kind of substance to the charge which they didn't charge uh but they did talk about it at the trial so they used it to deprive ross of bail by saying he was dangerous which if you knew ross is just an absurdity they used it to um deprive the defense of a witness list in a timely manner they didn't get the witness list till the friday before the monday of trial normally you get it weeks or months in advance to prepare your your case um and research and all of that of course, they used it at trial, even though they said, well, now, just to be clear, we're not charging for this. And then they went on to talk about it for almost a day. Um, and then the judge also allowed the sentencing to uh, be directed by it, referred to it, and um, I think use it as a justification for that sentence. This is all uncharged. Now, whether or not people think, oh, it's true or it's not true, and of course, how would you know that? This is a dangerous thing. That people can can mm-hmm. be um, treated like this with uncharged crimes. Right. This is it's like don't you have to charge people? And if you don't charge them, why are you even talking about it? Mm-hmm. To me, I find it very alarming just on that basis. Um, I know Ross. I know he is not a cruel, violent person. I think there's you know there's a hundred letters posted that that people wrote in to the judge about sentencing, talking about Ross. These are people who know him. Uh, a few of them are fellow inmates, but many of them have known him for years. Read those letters. You know, th- it's that is who Ross really is. And th- of course, the media loves the sensationalism, and people read headlines. You know, and then they make decisions. I mean, I'm still reading comments about it, and I'm like, oh my god. And then the, you know, it's just, how about we stick to the law? And you charge people and you prove it and you have a jury and, you know, that's what it's all about. Unfortunately, all too often in the drug war, we see um, prosecutors using maneuvers like this, bringing, right, charges that never, that are never brought to trial and, and used as an intimidation tactic more so than because they actually have evidence of that crime being committed. Um, sorry, and I interrupted you. You had la- one last point you wanted to make. Um. I'm trying to remember the first question. I'm sorry. What was your first question, Sam? Um, so I was also asking just about the uh, the possibility of there being multiple Dread Pirate Roberts and that they didn't even allow that. No, they did not. In fact, they fought tooth and nail to prevent the jury from hearing any hint of that. One of their own agents, uh, Jared Yeagan, who was on undercover for two years on Silk Road at thousands of hours, uh, testified that he thought there was more than one Dread Pirate Roberts. Mm-hmm. And um, that cross-examination was shut down. 
there was a witness who had gone by the name of Inigo. Uh, he was a high-level admin on Silk Road, and he was going to be take the witness stand. He's in custody, and then they took him off the, the list. Um, he had made a statement that our the defense wanted to at least read this one statement to the jury, and the prosecution fought this, and the judge sustained their objection. What it was was that Inigo and DPR had set up a uh, prompt because everybody knew that there were lots of DPRs, you know, nobody knew who was really behind those chats. Mm -hmm. And when Inigo went to communicate, that particular DPR didn't know the answer. So that was not, the jury couldn't even hear that. Mm -hmm. um, I've talked a lot with Alex Winter, who directed and wrote the um, documentary Deep Web. And he interviewed a lot of people on Silk Road, high up in the organization. And he said they all say they everybody knew there was more than one DPR. They had, they were obviously different ages, personalities, just different. Uh, you can just tell, you know, interacting. And um, and in fact, one tells an anecdote about how he wanted a second account or something. A DPR said no, and he said, "Look, just go ask the other DPR, would you?" And he did, and, and they said, okay, fine, you can do it, you know? Wow. So, I mean, it's like, you know, uh, this was common knowledge. Um, Amir Taki, he talks about it. He, he actually told me. He said, yeah, I talked to DPR early days. He's a great guy. We had a great conversation. And then about a year later, I talked to DPR. It was a totally different guy. He, he, you know, he didn't even remember talking to me. And, you know, and so I, you know, yeah, I think – even the, the character, like you say, of Dread Pirate Roberts indicates passing it along. And Alice Winter said it's a hive. It's not. But in the old fashioned 20th century law enforcement vision, it's got to mm -hmm. be one guy and you got to take him to mm -hmm. trial and you got to have him be the one. And they needed one. And Ross was the one. Mm -hmm. And that's not fair either, is it? And so, really, I don't know, you know, even when you know some of the things like well there was this happened or that happened at silk road in my mind i'm going well it may or may not who you know i don't know who that was yeah all, all these prosecutors and people that are you know fighting uh for the war on drugs are just so used to these uh traditional structures of these organizations that are very hierarchical and there's obviously just one person at the top and who knows if it's just that they're stuck in that mindset and don't even understand the, the the concept of there being this more distributed network of people online, or if it was just that they were looking for a scapegoat. Probably, probably a combination of both, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure the jury didn't understand it. I mean, they were kept mm -hmm. from knowing a lot of things anyway. But right. what comes out of this idea of 20th century thinking being imposed on the digital age is some very troubling precedents. Mm -hmm. And which is why this case is more bigger than Ross, more important. And, um, you know, things that will impact the, uh, us digitally going forward. Mm -hmm. And so that that's and, a whole other issue. And Megan, actually, um, you you will be we've talked a lot today about um, Silk Road and those types of websites being the future of um, drug transactions and online uh, sales of narcotics really just being the future um, of what the drug market will look like. You're actually leading a panel um, on this specific topic at the next International Drug Policy Conference. Do you think you can give us a little tease of, and Lynn will be on that panel. Um, so for our listeners, if you've enjoyed 
um, our discussion today. You should definitely check out uh, the conference for more of this type of discussion. So yeah, Megan, can you tell us a little bit about what that panel might look like? Yeah, so it's still very much in flux. The conference is still several months away. It's in Washington, D.C., uh, November 18th through 21st-ish. Uh, you perform conference.org. You can learn more about it. Uh, but the panel, uh, you know, Digital Spaces, Drug Sales, and the Future of Drug Policy, it's really an attempt to, number one, just educate drug policy reformers about what this model is and why it matters so much for people who care about the war on drugs and who are trying to resist and fight the war on drugs. And it's also an opportunity to just learn more about how do these things work and uh, what are the benefits to people. So, you know, people who support harm reduction, like myself and Lynn, I'm sure now is a very big advocate for harm reduction. Uh, people who support harm reduction really believe that, you know, people will use drugs. They just will. Some portion of the population will always use drugs, despite our best efforts to discourage use, et cetera, et cetera. Some portion of the population will always use drugs. So if we all just acknowledge that reality, what do we do? to minimize risks to people, not just the risk in consuming drugs, but the risk involved in, in purchasing drugs or even supplying drugs to someone who wants to purchase them. These are risky, dangerous behaviors, and in many cases, people get injured or assaulted or, or they even die from accidental overdoses and all sorts of different things. So this panel is really an attempt to educate people about what digital drug marketplaces are and also the ways that they really can offer benefit and risk reduction to pretty much everyone involved in the entire process of procuring and selling and consuming drugs. So I can't tell you exactly yet exactly who's going to be on the panel. We're still getting everything together, um, but my fingers are very much crossed that we can get Lynn there. There will be some international experts um, if everything goes well, fingers crossed. Um, people who were very active in supporting Ross during the trial, people who have done research on Silk Road uh, and, and similar websites with, you know, peer reviewed, published research on these things. So fingers crossed. So if you're if your folks are interested in learning more, not just about this topic, but all kinds of things related to how do we make uh, the global dr war on drugs end how, how do we fight this damn thing and find ways to end it you can certainly come to the conference and learn a lot more about it the international drug policy reform conference awesome thank you so much megan and i didn't mean to put you on the spot um <laughs> if you're that your panel wasn't fully developed yet but i thought that was a really interesting tease and i hope our listeners do um decide to check out the conference and that brings us to an excellent segue to our, the last part of our segment we always wrap up our roundtable discussions with a call to action since educating people is pretty useless if they're not also using that knowledge to improve their communities and make positive changes such as with the laws we've discussed today so if you could have our listeners uh, do something right now what would you ask them to do let's start with lynn well i really encourage people to go to freeross.org and um, if you can to please donate to help us fund this appeal you know again ross has been made a poster boy for this awful drug war and this is a battle a major battle in that drug war and uh, the government has sent a message that they're doubling down they have no intention of um backing off of this drug war uh that this sentence has made that quite clear and so we have this battle we're one family and um we're pushing back and we'd like you to help us send a message back to them mm -hmm. saying no 
And one of the best ways that can happen is if this is overturned in appeal. And appeals are extremely expensive. It's been pretty devastating for our family, but um, we and we can't do it alone. We just can't. We need grassroots support to um, to fight this. So if you whatever you can do, really appreciate it. FreeRoss.org. Thank you so much, Lynn. And Megan, uh, your call to action? I agree with Lynn. Please donate money to Ross's appeal. Um, you know, the Ulbrichs are extremely nice people. Lynn is a wonderful, powerful woman who, as you would imagine, is living a nightmare right now, not just emotionally, but financially. These are just nice, normal people just who are just living their nice, normal lives. And then something like this comes along and completely upends everything. Um, and the toll that this has taken on her and her family has just got to be so beyond what any of us have ever experienced and God forbid what would ever experience. Please donate money. That's number one. I, I so support her and her family and the effort to free Ross. Second, please watch Deep Web. It's an excellent documentary. Um, it's uh, available in limited places, but please go search it out and watch it. You will learn so much more, not just about the trial and how Silk Road operates, but you really come to know Ross as a person, who he is. Like, he's not just this mythical figure. He's a real guy, you know, who had thoughts and dreams and a childhood and, you know, get to know a little bit more about who Ross is as a person that's number two so go see deep web and third please get involved in resisting the war on drugs so many people care about these issues but they don't really take the next step go get involved with drug policy alliance go get involved with any of the organizations that are pushing back against this kind of tyranny rained down on us from a government that doesn't care about our civil liberties or our personal privacy rights that tramples mm -hmm. on our constitutional rights constantly so go get involved Involved with organizations, join their email list, take an action, send an e email to a legislator who wants to pass bad drug policy. There are lots of things you can do, but just take that next step and contact an organization that believes what you believe about fighting the war on drugs. Perfect. Thank you so much. And, and just both, thank you both so much for coming on and speaking with us today and sharing your stories. And for our listeners, again, this has been Lynn Ulbricht, the mother of Ross Ulbricht, who was recently convicted as quote-unquote Dread Pirate Roberts, the head of internet marketplace Silk Road, and Megan Ralston, the drug policy consultant and former harm reduction manager at the Drug Policy Alliance. And so since Ross is appealing the case, and, and again, I do just want to drive home, please donate to the campaign. I definitely plan to once we hang up this call. And we'll be sure to include any developments in our weekly news segments as they come out. And we'll have some links to the free Ross campaign on our website if you'd like to contribute too. So thank you again, Megan and Lynn. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Episode 7 of This Week in Drugs, hosted by Rochelle Young and me, Sam Tracy. The show is produced by Tyler Williams, and we'd like to thank Lynn Ulbricht and Me Megan Ralston once again for joining us for the discussion. Be sure to tune in next week for our usual rundown of the news, a focus on some recent trends around cocaine, and a discussion on marijuana and other drug policy in the District of Columbia. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please send us a message on Facebook or Twitter, or you can also email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, thisweekindrugs.org, for more info about the show and who's behind it, links to our guests and their organizations, and a lot more. So please remember to stay sensible, and we'll see you next week.